This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by Blue Land. Did you know that uh, about 5 billion, billion? That's a de- I checked that because that's a lot. Plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away every year. And if that's not bad enough, most cleaning formulas are 90% water, which is heavy. We're shipping around all this water using fuel when we don't have to. Every year, Americans throw away 25% more trash from Thanksgiving to New Year. This year, maybe turn the New Year's resolution into action that makes a difference by switching to Blue Land. Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet with the same powerful clean you're used to. It's a simple idea. They have refillable cleaning products. They have a nice design. I have them in my home. It looks nice on your counter. You fill the reusable bottles with water, drop in the Blue Land tablets, wait for them to dissolve, and you never have to grab bulky, heavy cleaning supplies on your grocery run ever again. And refills, because they're small and you don't have to ship a bunch of water across the country, starts at just $2.25. You can even set up a subscription or buy in bulk for additional savings. From cleaning sprays to hand soap, toilet bowl cleaner, and laundry tablets, Laundry tablets, everybody, you know what I mean. All Blue Land products are made with clean ingredients that you can feel good about. Blue Land is trusted in over a million homes, including, yeah, mine. Blue Land has a special offer for listeners right now. You can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash dearhank. You won't want to miss it. Blueland.com slash dearhank for 15% off. Again, blueland.com slash dearhank to get 15% off. Welcome to Dear Hank and John. Doors up for to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a podcast where two brothers answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John, yeah. it was recently Thanksgiving. I, unfortunately, though, decided to no longer eat leftovers. Um, mm. Yeah, I just quit cold turkey. <laughs> hey. That's pretty good. All right, thanks. That's pre- it reminds me of... I mean, there's a lot of things in English that are just ludicrous. The the more I think (laughs) about this language, the more I think that we Mm -hmm. should just scrap the entire affair. And I feel regret that English has become the lingua franca of the world. Uh But the phrase cold turkey is a great phrase. Sure. It's just, even though I have no idea what the etymology (laughs) is, it's so evocative. If somebody says to me like, oh yeah, I quit cold turkey. I'm like, oh boy, that must have been challenging. (laughs) It's one of those etymologies that, like, you know is there, but, like, I'd rather not. I'd just rather not. I want to just keep this complete nonsense piece of my language. Yeah. Preserve it as complete nonsense. I don't need to know. Don't tell me. I just want to know that, like, language is this weird. It means nothing. Yeah. Has nothing. Cold turkey has nothing to do with the doing or not doing of different vices. Also, you can't. You don't just quit vices cold turkey. I find that I often quit virtues cold turkey, which is much easier. But yeah, I love the mystery <laughs> of etymology I don't understand. And it reminds me of, you know, like all of human history before about 2005, when mm-hmm. if we didn't know something, we just didn't know it. We just didn't know. Yeah. You, you either had to be an expert in that thing and you're like, oh, yes, I already know that. I've known that for a while. Or you just said, ah, and that was it. The, the conversation. And uh, a weird thing, for example, that I know, you know how lice is the plural of louse? Sure, of course. And mice is the plural of mouse? Yep. Vice is actually the plural of vouse. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I mean, one example of how ludicrous English is, is that while vouse isn't a word, V-O-I-C-E is a word. And for some reason, it's pronounced voice. <laughs> uh, I don't believe you. Uh, do you want to answer some questions for our listeners, John? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I could I could spend the rest of the time just talking about how angry I am about spelling. Yeah. But let's answer this question from Catherine, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I was wondering, can stinging insects such as bees or wasps sting other insects? And is this a common occurrence? Thanks for reading. Hank, I am not your wife, Catherine. Thanks for letting me know. That sounds like something your wife would say. There's no way to know for sure, uh, but I'm just going to trust you. Uh, yes, I know for a fact that bugs can sting bugs. And I know that like ants, for example, I think mostly that's what that's for. Oh, yeah. Is to like combat invading invading bugs. Sure. To bite them. Um, and I know that uh, that there are lots of bugs that eat bugs and and their main way of doing it is by biting them. Spiders, for example, do that lots. People come at me for saying a spider's a bug. I stand by it. And bees definitely also sting other bugs. I got stung by a bee yesterday. Oh, no. Where? I had a terrible day yesterday. Oh. It was one of those days where you start to think that the universe is conspiring against you, uh -huh. which in my case, and really in the case of most people, requires like such a limited and selected version of the facts, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I am yeah, on the I'm very only, far I'm edge. only counting the bad things that happened today, and yeah. only because I can o like only experience the world through this one body. Um, right, I, right. I really only care about one thing, which is where you got stung on your body. I don't know why this is, but when somebody tells me they got a bee sting, I just I'm just not interested unless it's somewhere weird. Yeah, so I don't know how weird it was. It's a part of my body that I don't know has a technical name. But in our family... No, it's English, John. There's a word for it. In our family, we have always referred to this part of the body as the woofs because of a Missy Misdemeanor Elliot song. <laughs> Hank, as you know, I think that Missy Misdemeanor Elliot is the only pop artist that will be listened to in 100 years and that she is a proper and actual genius. Uh -huh. There's a lyric in one of Missy Elliot's songs where she says, I lost a few pounds in my woofs for you, which isn't really like a well-defined thing. Uh -huh. But I've always treated it as the... The kind of part of your back, your lower back that's near your side, kind of near your hips, just above your hips. Like your love handle? That is, uh, some people would call it a love handle, but I find that, I don't like that term. I much prefer woofs. Anyway, <laughs> I mean, so I on understand. My left, now that I've used the word love handle out loud and thought about the origin of that phrase, yeah. I no longer want to use it. Yeah. Ew. Yeah, how that's... is that a word that we have that we're just okay saying to people? Right, hence hence my use of woofs. So anyway, I was on my left oh, woof. Gosh. While I was All cycling, right. I was on a nice, what was going to be a really lovely 40-mile bike ride. Um, mm. I got stung by a bee at about mile eight, and I was like, oh, that's a bummer. I wish I hadn't gotten a bee sting on my woofs. And then at mile 12, <laughs> uh, both of my tires exploded simultaneously. Whoa, uh, which, neat. Which, Did you drive over real, some bees? No bees, uh, just... Um, I mean, I it's Indianapolis, so I bike over glass constantly, so you wouldn't think it would be an issue. Uh, but this particular glass, I guess, was the wrong kind of glass. Mm -hmm. So then I had to just be in this neighborhood I didn't know in Indianapolis for about 45 minutes yeah. because I was waiting for Sarah to come pick me up. And I know I should have had 
like two different inner tubes or whatever, whatever. (laughs) But I didn't, okay? I'm a bad cyclist. So then I had to wait for Sarah to pick me up. And then Sarah called me and she said, you won't believe this. I have a flat tire. Wow, that's amazing. I I think it was all bees. I think every one of those things was done by bees. Yeah, the bee stung the tire. The bee stung yeah. the tires of my bike. So then Chris uh-huh. had to come pick me up and... He was very nice about it, but he clearly, it wasn't how Chris was hoping to spend his 3 p.m. Sunday hour, which is <laughs> his favorite hour of the week when he watches the NFL Red Zone channel. So uh-huh. yeah. all in all, I just caused a lot of problems yesterday. And also that bee probably died, right? Like I probably killed that bee. Right. If it was a bee, it definitely died. <laughs> so yeah. I just, I, it was a bit of a bummer of a day, but we're here now uh-huh. and Good. and we're safe. And we're going to answer this question from Tucker, who writes, okay. Dear Brothers Green, but mostly Hank, cor- correct, mm-hmm. correctly surmised, Tucker, what is the scientific <laughs> difference between stuffy and fresh air? It's It could be a number of different things. I think like heat is a part of it when you're in a room and it gets warm. We say that that's stuffy. Um, but the thing that we are, we're not great at knowing, but our bodies are, uh, is CO2 levels. Yeah. So usually, the, like, this is usually what we're talking about. When when we're in a room and there's a bunch of people in it, and, like, after a while, it just starts to feel stuffy, it's actually because, like, the carbon dioxide levels in that room have gone up. It's just sort of like a mild irritant, and you are cognitively less effective. They've done studies on this. So that's that's a big part of what it is. And uh, some people will say, put some plants in there. That is, won't do it. What you need is to open the door and the window and get a fan going to recirculate the air in your enclosed space. I was just recently in a space like this. We had a lot of people in it. It was warm. It was stuffy. And by the end of the day, it was like, we need to figure out a name for this. And everyone was like, but not right now. Right now, we need to just go the frick outside, which is what we did. Oh, that just, that sounds like my idea of hell. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we've all been sick too. It's like sick season here. And so oh. everybody had the sniffles at the same time. You wouldn't have been happy. Uh, no one was. Was this like a day long meeting kind of thing? It was so, yeah, it was, a, it was exactly a day long meeting kind of thing. It was fine. It was great. I was very glad to have been able to have the meeting. I just, you know, wish that it hadn't been a meeting. As you know, Hank, I don't love meetings, Uh huh. but I do hate them. I hate them so, 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 so much. And right. even, even attending them for one or two hours a week is very difficult for me. You know how, how Anakin Skywalker gets really like frustrated that he isn't on the Jedi Council at one point and he, like, he basically turns evil <laughs> yeah. because of it? Yeah, he's and like, I'm just I like, Anakin, be on the no, Jedi Council. it's not this- fair. It's just meetings. What do you think the Jedi Council does? They meet. Ugh. That's it. It's that's the only thing. Probably occasionally they like put out a white paper that's got some <laughs> oh, impenetrable title. But they argue about it so much beforehand. Right. Yeah. Like if I were a Jedi, mm-hmm. which is a big if, I, I know very <laughs> few people who are less likely to be a Jedi than me. But uh-huh. if I were yeah. a Jedi, uh-huh. I would do anything to stay off of the Jedi Council. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and can you imagine being like a 17-year-old just like swordsman and being like, I wish there were more meetings in my life, and if not, I will turn evil. Right, exactly. Yeah, if you're not going to let me into your five-hour-long meetings where you discuss the minutia of the Force and argue with each other, 
then I'm going to go work for the emperor. <laughs> Screw you guys. I want to. <laughs> yeah, some people are just really into the bureaucracy. The emperor said I could meet with him whenever I want. <laughs> All right, I think we've I think we've overanswered this question, which I don't even remember what it was about. This next question comes from Lauren, who asks, "Dear Hank and John, why are there not?" Many books about 20-somethings, or am I just mm. looking in the wrong place? I love YA novels, young adult, but the experiences that I can relate to aren't the experiences of 16- and 17-year-olds uh, any longer. But when I try to find adult fiction to read, much of it is about people with uh, children and their divorces and their 30-plus-year-old lives. I just want to read stories that I can relate to more as a 22-year-old college graduate starting my life in the, quote, real world. DFTBA, Lauren. To me... The evidence for the fact that this genre is amazing is your book, An Absolutely Remarkable Thing, which is about those. Yeah, I should have read the P.S. to this question, which is P.S., An Absolutely Remarkable Thing by Hank Green is a book about a 20-something that is available in bookstores everywhere. Thank you, Lauren. And also thank you, John. Yeah, and it's about those heady, difficult, complicated days when you are you know, asked to be an adult on your own for the first time. And I I love books about that time of life, like Microsurfs mm -hmm. by Douglas Copeland and A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius by Dave Eggers. I, I just think like that time of life is really rich and fascinating and difficult. And I want to read more books set in that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, what's the problem? I guess I don't think there is a problem because I think there are mm. lots of like so-called new adult books out there and lots of different people writing them. I just think that it isn't a well-established kind of right. category the way that young adult lit is. And the reason young adult lit is a well-established category in the end has lots to do with teachers and librarians and the kinds of people who pay uh, mm. attention to the critical discourse around different categories of literature. And mm -hmm. it would be great to see a similar thing build up for books about people in their 20s. It just doesn't feel as separate a category as like books for teenagers does. Sure. Right. It, they're in there. They're just hiding amongst all the books about the divorces and the children in the 30s. Right. Exactly. Okay. Whereas books for teens, like there's a place in the library or in the bookstore that you go to find them. Right. Books about being a so-called new adult, whether it's Sula by Toni Morrison or Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore, are just categorized as adult fiction. Yeah. Which I remember yeah. when I started to work at Booklist. And I was like 21 or 22 years old and everybody just casually said adult fiction all the time. I would always giggle <laughs> <laughs> because it sounds, you, you mean know, like 50 shades. <laughs> it sounds a little 50 shades. -y. Yeah. So I think that you question asker should become America's leading scholar of 20 something fiction. Yes. That's your job now. We need it. We need we need someone out there establishing the genre. People always think that writers are the people who make that stuff happen, but it's it's just not true. Critics and librarians and, yeah. and teachers make the space that then writers fill. Yeah, and the stores too. Yep. All right, Hank, this next question comes from Caitlin and it's a doozy. Dear John and Hank, when did limos become uncool? <laughs> This is such a great question because it yeah. just happened. Well, I didn't. I didn't know. Uh, it also says uh, chauffeurs and stofers, Caitlin. It's a great sign off. I should have read this. It's great. 
Yeah, you can't can't miss that opportunity, John. Uh, so literally, I didn't know that limos had become uncool. So you apparently have caught on to this trend before me. Tell me about well, it. Well, I, I think there's something a little uncool about them right now. And I hope that it passes because I love me a limo. Like <laughs> my 40th birthday party was in French oh Lake, in Indiana. Mm-hmm. which is the uh, gambling capital of Indiana. French Lick <laughs> is an amazing place. I recommend it's it. It's an amazing name. I recommend it unreservedly. <laughs> <laughs> and what for, happens in French Lick it comes with you for the rest of your life. <laughs> for my 40th and... birthday, no comment, Sarah got me a limo and the limo uh-huh. took us to French Lick. And so it was like a two hour drive and we got to drink wow. champagne and we were in a limo and like mm-hmm. I Loved it. I loved everything about it. I think limos are amazing. But (laughs) I have heard from other people, especially when I was bragging about how incredibly generous and wonderful Sarah was to get me a limo, and they'd be like, you like limos? And I was like, yeah, of course I like limos. Who doesn't like a limo? Who doesn't like to be in a car that's bigger than a regular car? (laughs) It's like a car, but long. Yeah. Limousine. But I, I, so I, I did hear that from some people in the office who were in their like 20s. Yeah. And that made me think maybe limos aren't as oh. cool as they used to be. Uh, my friends rent a limo and they drive around with a bunch of kids to look at the, the Christmas lights. Oh, that's I, a thing. It's a, it's a total thing, but it's very weird because it's clear when you're in the limo that the limo is not designed for kids. It's designed for like partying teenagers. So there's all these like accoutrements that are not necessary. Right. Like lots of coolers for your champagne bottles and very neat lights. And it's just like, this is not what this is designed for, but we have co-opted it. And like that might be part of it, like grown 40-somethings putting their five and to nine-year-olds in a in a limo to like go look at Christmas lights is the least cool thing you could possibly do with a cool car. What are you going to do, Hank? We we grow old, we grow old, we shall wear the bottoms of our trousers rolled. This next question comes from Rachel, who asks, Dear John and Hank, in the last year, my family faced a lot of rough circumstances. Because of this, we've decided to take a trip to Disney World. My problem is that it's going to be me, my parents, my brother, and his wife. I'm the fifth wheel. Uh. I'm going to have to sit next to a stranger on all the rides. Do you have any tips for conversation starters? What else can I do to feel less lonely on this trip? Best wishes, Rachel. Mm. Well, you got to investigate all the rides that are three across, which there are some of, or four. Yeah. Uh, Make sure you hit those. Most of the rides are not two across. Like, I think Thunder Mountain might be two across, but most of them Mm -hmm. aren't. That's one thing. The other thing is that, like, I think you should say to your parents, like, hey, it's your time to be the single this time. Like, your parents know each other. They've been married for a while, I assume. They've been sitting next to each other for a while. Yeah. They're not going to mind splitting up. Like when That's when right. Sarah and I took our kids to Disney World, which I regret to say was tremendously fun. But <laughs> when we took our kids to Disney World, and I mean, I was a complete, I was a Scrooge about the entire affair. As someone who grew up in Orlando, I have an active hatred for Disney World. And the entire time I was like, bah humbug, bah humbug, bah humbug. And everyone was like, isn't this fun? And I was like, oh, yes, yes. It's very fun, unfortunately. Humbugging through his smile. Yeah. Yeah. God, I do enjoy Space Mountain. Anyway. <laughs> oh God, it's Space Mountain's so good. Uh that's that's not that's a one-seater. You don't have to sit next to anybody. It's magic. You can also say, you know what, mom and dad, I'm gonna go do Buzz Lightyear by myself a bunch. Do they have Buzz Lightyear? It 
at the at the world or just at the land? I think they still have Buzz Lightyear, but I think it's also like closing to be replaced by a ride that isn't terrible. No. <laughs> I just like, I like rides that have no lines, and so I love the bad ones. Well, then you must have loved Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> Hank. <laughs> yeah. I have to read you our all-time best name-specific sign-off. This question okay. comes from Caitlin, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I'm just really confused about snowflakes. How do we know that no two snowflakes are alike? I mean, is that just something that we've been told as kids that isn't necessarily true? It's not like we can see every single snowflake that's ever dropped. How can we know that a snowflake that fell in Alaska a thousand years ago wasn't the exact same as a snowflake mm. that fell somewhere else last year? There are infinite ways to form a snowflake, but only 155 ways to spell Caitlin. <laughs> <laughs> it's the it's the worst of the names for this reason. It is certainly it is certainly the most heterogeneous of spelling. Yeah, you got it. You're at Starbucks and you're like, it's Caitlin, and they're like with a K, and then you're like, yeah, and they're like, and an A, and, an a. and they're like, yeah, and a T, yeah. Any eyes in and there? It's essentially <laughs> a, a game of the Wheel y? of Fortune. <laughs> <laughs> Spell it out, please. <laughs> uh, so one of the one of the things is there are so many molecules in a snowflake yeah. that there will always be some variation, and that is that is by virtue of just the the sheer volume, the the number of of molecules in a snowflake is very very large. But also a, the way a snowflake forms is extremely dependent on its physical situation, the humidity, the wind, uh, what the shape and size of the nucleus of the snowflake is. So the, the little grain of dust that it started to form around. And then also we're generally talking about these six pointed snowflakes when we're talking about identical snowflakes. And they have more opportunity for variation than other kinds of snowflakes, which we don't tend to like it's snowing, but it's not a snowflake in the same way. And they can be much simpler structures. But Interestingly, scientists can make snowflakes in a laboratory, and when they do that, they can make them form roughly in identical ways. Now, they're still not identical just because like one's going to be a different size and have slightly more molecules of water than another, but they the crystal will form in roughly the same way. And then you get like this sort of perfect little snowflake that you make and and you can study like the ways that snowflakes form themselves and like what influences how they how they crystallize, which is really neat. But um, the chances of that happening in a single snowstorm are very, very low. But when you're talking about two that would be visibly identical, it is possible that you could find two snowflakes that you could not visibly see with your naked eye any difference between. It's just very, 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 very unlikely. All right. I feel that that was an ex extremely comprehensive answer. Do you know how... <laughs> that I probably got something wrong during and people... Of course, the more comprehensive you get, the more <laughs> likely you are to make a mistake. That's why I like to stick to the broad <laughs> analysis. Yeah. When I was a kid growing up in Florida, mm -hmm. and I don't know how I came to this incorrect belief, but I had all kinds of incorrect beliefs, right? Like I was 37 years old when I found out that it was a chest of drawers, not a Chester drawers. Yeah. But one of my incorrect beliefs was that I thought that snowflakes were about the size of like the cutouts you would do in kindergarten that were, yeah. they were about the size of a human palm. Yeah. We both had this shared 
uh, this shared incorrect belief because they make you cut snowflakes out of big pieces of paper. Yeah. And then you're like 12 or 13 years old and yeah. you find yourself at some point in, in, in the great white north. And I'd, I'd seen snow before, but I'd only seen it on the ground. You know, like I'd only seen uh -huh. it post falling and, and it's snowing. And I remember thinking this like, this is it. This is such a disappointment. That's I, what all this fuss is about. That little guy. I had been told that beautiful geometric shapes fall out mm -hmm. of the sky and each of them is visibly different. But this is just, <laughs> this is nothing. This is crap. This is the most, uh -huh. it, it was the most disappointed I have ever been. My first snowstorm was <laughs> just emotionally devastating. <laughs> anyway, today's podcast is brought to you by the largest snowflake Hank has ever seen. The largest snowflake Hank has ever seen, less than an inch in diameter. This podcast is also brought to you by the 155 different spellings of the name Caitlin. This is not anyone's fault, but I want to blame someone. It's English's fault. I blame English. What a disaster okay, of a language. This would never happen in French. Additionally, today's podcast is brought to you by Disney World. Disney World, I, I, I mean, I, I, it's, 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 our, it's nice, okay? And also this podcast is brought to you by the Jedi Council. The Jedi Council having meetings and doing nothing but having meetings for thousands of years. Oh my God, imagine living for thousands of years. Huh? Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius, because there will be a world without us. Any meetings you'd have to go to. <laughs> Hank, if you could pick your lifespan, uh-huh. What would you pick? If I could pick my lifespan? Yeah, healthy, healthy lifespan. I mean, big as possible. Really? You'd go for like five thousand years? Could I pick other people to come with me? <laughs> no, that's not how it works. I said oh, if you could pick your lifespan. Oh, 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 that does make it rougher. But forever still. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. For me, 86. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, Hank, we've been talking a lot about different visions of hell. And this question comes from Alex, who writes, Dear John and Hank, what? I'm currently stuck on a bus with 50 other 12-year-olds. We departed oh. at one o'clock. It's currently 3.30. This usually only takes an hour, but that's beside the point. What do you do on a bus with 51 12-year-olds and one adult? We've already had oh. a sing-along. 
a drawing contest, an impromptu concert, and an essay oh. writing contest from oh. Alex, the seventh grader. Okay. First off, Alex, so, you are a very impressive seventh grader. Yeah. That's a great email. For, I, I thought for most of this question that you were the adult. I also thought you were the adult, Alex. So great question. <laughs> Good job. And by the way, before we answer the question, let us pause and give thanks for the one adult on that bus. <laughs> Is it just the driver? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe one of the 12-year-olds is driving, but the important thing <laughs> is that the one adult on the bus yeah. is probably having a challenging yes. three and a half hour period. Well, Alex, by the fact that you sent in a question to your favorite advice podcast starring two middle-aged men uh, leads me to believe that you have a smartphone and that it is currently not out of batteries. So right. the first thing you want to do is switch to low battery consumption <laughs> mode. Whatever you can do to draw that boy yep. out lo lowest possible light level all of the all the bells and whistles turned off and then you want to think to yourself this rectangle gives me access to the entire knowledge of of people's current understanding of the Star Wars universe via Wikipedia. Yes. And so I am going to go to Wikipedia and become like expert level. I will one day work for Lucasfilm checking on whether something counts as canon or not. That level of expertise about the Star Wars universe. Yes, and share your trivia as you learn it, Alex. So you're engaging socially. Right, just shout it out. While also yeah. becoming a Wikipedia expert. Yeah, you got to shout out like, what percentage of Hoth do you think is over? Oceans over <laughs> under. Anybody you want multiple choice? Yeah. Hank and I know just how to become popular in seventh grade. <laughs> It sounds like you're doing a great job, I, Alex. But in what I, I year would I would leave Mundi become a member of the Jedi Council. What year? Can Before I Before the Battle of Yavin. Yeah, BBY. <laughs> Can I ask you a semi-related question? Uh-huh. Are you the kind of person who, when your phone is draining battery and you know you've got, you know, a long period of boredom ahead of you and you have no other distractions, are you the kind of person who can successfully resist the urge to just drain it all the way to zero? No. Me neither. No, the number of times that I've been act like doing something with the full knowledge that my phone is about to die and then my phone dies and I've gone, ah! Yeah. Uh, not countable. Yeah. Same for me. I have like, even if you said, John, in two hours, you're going to have to make an emergency phone call. But for the next two hours, you're going to have to sit alone in this empty room. I would be like, <laughs> oh, all right. But just as a heads up, I'm going to need to borrow a phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I need to know whether vice is a plural. <laughs> I'm suddenly extremely curious about the etymology of cold turkey. So <laughs> I didn't think I wanted to know, but it turns out that I need to know now. <laughs> So, John, before we get to the all-important news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, we got some responses and updates. This first one is from Ants, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I come from Latvia, and here, as well as the other Baltic states, sweet cottage cheese is very popular, especially among kids. We do not, however, eat it with sugar. We have it flavored with many different flavors, like chocolate, vanilla, coconut, etc., and covered in chocolate, by which I'm... Are you talking like flakes or sauce? Like I think it's Hershey's sauce. Syrup. I actually yeah, like Googled this, syrup. and it's sauce. Okay. Yeah. It's delicious, and you should try it if you ever find yourself here. I Like, I... 
Ants, I just want to say, I can make this at home, I feel like. I don't necessarily need to go all the way to Latvia to figure out how to put uh, different flavors and chocolate sauce on my cottage cheese. I would like to try it in Latvia, which is one of the places I haven't visited that I would most like to visit. We heard from a number of people Mm -hmm. who live in Central or Eastern Europe that this is very common in Central and Eastern Europe. And what our listener of a previous episode whose in-laws enjoyed sweet cottage cheese didn't understand is that it is not an American regional thing. It is a central and Eastern European thing. All of these emails totally brought me around. I tried some cottage cheese with chocolate sauce on top of it after I Googled like how to do it. And it was pretty actually good as long as I didn't think about what I was eating. You know, like as long as I just enjoyed the flavors (laughs) and I didn't think about Uh the fact that this was cottage cheese with Hershey sauce on top. It was really quite good. We also got a number of emails about that one hot dog stand in Iceland, all of which bolstered my belief that that one hot dog stand in Iceland is indeed a special place. (laughs) It's one of those. It's like on the crossing of the ley lines. Yes. Where it's like if you sold if you sold chocolate covered cottage cheese there, it'd be the best chocolate covered cottage cheese in the world. Uh, It's it's just the place. It's the place, not the dogs. Although I think it is in this case, the dogs. Mike wrote in to say, Dear John, I just had to pull over in a moorland of Scotland. And I don't know exactly what that means, Hank. Does that mean that Mike's car like went into quicksand or something? Or how serious is that situation? Uh, Yeah, it sounds like uh, he's in a swampy area. All right. Anyway, Mike went on to say, I have also experienced that wonderful hot dog. My wife and I had opening week tickets to the Harry Potter play, and then she fell pregnant. That must be a Britishism, but what a wonderful one. (laughs) And we realized we couldn't make it, so we sold the tickets and used the money for a trip to Iceland while my in-laws watched our baby in Edinburgh. I ate the hot dog. It was delicious. I have loved every part of your creative output for the last nine years, but reminding me of that hot dog is the best thing you have ever done for me. (laughs) Hank is cool, too. (laughs) And now I drop the comma, Mike. Y'all, when you go to Reykjavik, eat this hot dog. It's special. Oh, God, I'm going to take a trip just for the dog. Also, I looked up what a moor is and what moorlands are, and I was it's not swampy at all. It looks beautiful. Great. Looks like a mountain valley. Speaking of beautiful, let me tell you about what happened to AFC Wimbledon this week. Woo! We won a football game. <laughs> We did it, Hank. We won a football game. We beat Gillingham, possibly Gillingham. Scientists still aren't sure. Gillingham is home but to... They're, they're pretty good. They're pretty good, and they're home to many former AFC Wimbledon players, including oh. uh, our longtime captain, Barry Fuller, a person I have hugged on two separate occasions and I'm a huge fan <laughs> of. So... Uh, You would think that I might have mixed feelings, but no, I was purely, purely happy. Uh, We won (laughs) 1-0. It was scrappy. The goal, though, was really good. It involved like a big cross-field pass and then some nice interlinked play of overlapping runs before Scotty Wagstaff just absolutely smashed it along the ground into the corner of the net. It was a beautiful goal. It was in the 19th minute. And then we held on and did not give up a goal which is a nice uh, turn of events mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and a somewhat novel turn of events. And speaking of novel turn of events, as a result of having won this football game, Hank, AFC uh-huh. Wimbledon have, have I mean, we're, we're so high up the table, I'm starting to get nervous. <laughs> we're in 19th. 19- <laughs> 
you're in you're in fifth to last. <laughs> We're in fifth to last, but I'll remind you, only the bottom three teams go down. Right. So and you're not you're you're more than one away from relegation, but on point differential, but okay. Yeah. Goal differential. Goal differential. But yeah, so yeah. the the three bottom teams all lost last week, which is great news. I mean, not for them, except for Milton yeah. Keynes, in which case it's great news, period. Uh, but AFC Wimbledon, by virtue of that victory, we now have 16 points in our first 18 games, which is not a point-to-game ratio that would allow you to stay up in League One most seasons. But mm-hmm. maybe this season will be different. We'll see. It's it's tight down there at the bottom. Well, I mean, this one is is nice because of how there's a, there's only three relegation slots, so that does throw things off a little. It it is a uh, it, it is helpful to to Wimbledon's chances this year. It's been a scrappy, difficult League One campaign, no doubt about it. But having won this game, Hank, with our new manager Glenn Hodges, I've become convinced that we are going to win the league and go up to the championship, then go to the Premier League, and then okay. win the Premier League all in the next five years. And this and this year, you're going to come in and we're going to go into the last quarter of the season solidly in the middle of the bottom. Oh God, I would love that. And it's going to feel stable and fine Ugh. the whole time and you won't have to be stressed out about another thing in your life. I just don't want to have to watch another game at the very end of the season where we have to tie to stay up <laughs> ever it's, again. It's yeah, it's a great way to feel sick to your stomach for two straight yeah, hours. No, you made me feel that way. Oh, I really I, felt that I just way. yes, Hank, let's get to let's get to like 13th in yeah. April. Oh, that Ooh, would be amazing. 13th. That's a tasty spot. What's the news from Mars? In Mars news, um, next year might be the year we send another rover to Mars. But in the meantime, NASA and the European Space Agency are busy planning a mission to bring home some rocks. And by home, I mean to Earth. Wait, how? Well, I'm going to tell you. So the rovers that have been sent to Mars, they're amazing. They help us learn a lot. But there's... Uh, no way to do the amount of science on something with a robot that we could do here on Earth. But nothing is easy when it comes to sending things to and from another planet. Uh, so it's going to be a lot of work to get this to happen. Uh, the first part of the Mars return sample mission is actually the Mars 2020 rover. So when we get the rover to Mars, it's going to dig up bits of rock and collect them in tubes that can hold up to 20 grams of precious rock sample and then store that in a vacuum sealed thing. Uh, And it's going to keep some of those on board and it's going to store others on the ground. And by store, I mean it's going to leave them on the ground. The next step is in 2028, NASA and the European Space Agency are going to send a lander that has both a rover and a return rocket. The rover will drive around and it'll fetch all those sample tubes and take them back to the lander where they'll be loaded onto the return rocket. And then that will launch back to Earth. So this is going to be the first time that we've ever launched a rocket off another planet. And there's a lot of work and engineering to go before we've got that mission ready. And and it's worth noting, John, that this sample return is 2028, the year when I was supposed to get humans there. But instead, we might just get rocks uh, home from Mars. Right. What if instead just, of getting humans to Mars, we got yeah, Mars rocks, rocks to Earth? To Earth. Yeah. Uh, almost as impressive. Does that count? It does not count. Uh, almost. It does not count. Less, less substantial engineering challenge, but still very difficult. Um, so the rocket is going to be sent into orbit uh, to get in contact with a return orbiter. And then that's going to 
uh, have to like grab onto the rocket. So it's going to launch up into space, connect with its orbiter, and then that will seal up the samples and send them home by around, wait for it, 2031. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So uh, some of this is already in progress. Others are in the very, very, very preliminary stages of like budget approval, not even like science development. Well, now I do kind of want to live to be 8,000 years old so I can see a human on Mars. Uh, right. It's going to take a while. John, can we switch the podcast name back to Dear Hank and John after humans get to Mars? It's a great idea. Um, there's no way I'm going to still be doing the podcast, but you can call it whatever you'd like. <laughs> It'll just be called Dear Hank and Kevin, my friend Kevin, <laughs> who I met in the meantime. Right. Yeah. No, by then, you know, you'll be into your second life. You'll be 130 years old. You'll have a new brother. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah, in the future, you'll have to be able to get new brothers because of how you're definitely going to get <laughs> divorced from... It's going to take so long, you're going to have to get a brother divorce. All right. It's been a pleasure to pod with you, as always. We're off to record our Patreon-only podcast over at patreon.com slash John. It's called This Week in Ryan's for another five weeks before we debut an exciting new Patreon-only podcast, which is going to be great. It will. We have ideas. And if you've listened to that podcast, you know about them. But this podcast is a co-production of Complexly at WNYC Studios. It's edited by Joseph Tunamedish. It's produced by Rosiana Hals-Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our head of community and communications is Victoria Bongiorno. The music you're hearing now and at the beginning of the episode is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to be awesome. awesome.